0: Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, business editor for Variety. Today's guest is Clive Davis. Like many great musical artists, Clive has achieved one-name status in the entertainment industry. As the top music executive for the Columbia and Arista labels, his work stretched from Janis Joplin, Bruce Springsteen, and Patti Smith to Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, and Sean Combs. Davis these days has been consumed with producing a movie biopic of Houston that just landed a big deal at Sony Pictures. In our conversation, Davis talks me through how he assembled the package in an unusual way and how he and screenwriter Anthony McCartan didn't exchange a penny until they were both satisfied with a completed script. It's granular deal-making dish from an industry master. Clive is so passionate about the Houston movie that you can hear him pounding the table as he speaks.
1: Clive Davis, wow, what a a legend. We are so grateful that you've stopped by to give us some time to talk about the industry and the many things that you have going on right now. Um, Let's dive in. You are uh, just... Yesterday we got some big news, some uh, big news moving forward the Whitney Houston biopic that you that you are shepherding. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that project? It seems like it's just coming together.
2: Well yes, I can talk about the project I was uh, I've really not been happy with the documentaries that have come out on Whitney um, they don't reflect any real understanding of music. Um, In the case of the Kevin McDonald one, um, you know, he admitted to me that he doesn't know music and therefore not only is there nothing for me or Babyface or any of the incredible influence that Whitney had on not just other artists, but people, music fans, the general public all over the world. So that, yes, it's not my intent. It was not my original intent by any means to whitewash any of the uh, battles uh, that Whitney faced. But the full story of the Whitney that I have known uh, since our late teens, uh, years has not been told, so I would say it was probably over a year ago that I met Anthony McCartney. the screenwriter, uh, and uh, the screenwriter. He wrote *Amy and Rhapsody*. He wrote *The Two Folks*, was just nominated for the Academy Award. Uh, he wrote, you know, brilliant films on uh, Churchill, on Steve. And Hawkins, The Theory of Everything, The Darkest Hour. And so that I wanted, you've got to start with a great writer who likes music. And Anthony fit that bill. And we clicked so that it was really a year ago that Anthony and I not only met, but we started working on, on this biopic. And so that when we've just come, when the announcement has just come, that we have made a distribution arrangement uh, with Sony, uh, we've come with a full script. We've come with a completed script. And I made sure that Anthony uh, really met everybody that was a key player in the life of Whitney to understand her, not only members of her family but those that work with her, those that, even her psychiatrist, if you will, and from my files that I was so eager uh, to have other documentaries include, but they just felt music was not their thing. and. Uh it will be here. This will be a musically rich biopic. It will be, as I said in the announcement, no hold Far, mm-hmm. but it will capture Whitney. And so we're very excited uh about it. The financing has been raised. Sony uh won a really a fierce battle. Uh other labels uh you know, studios were passionate as well, um, and um, we're really excited now to move forward uh, with what I hope to be a classic, old-time film.
1: Do you enjoy that kind of work? Do you like the work of being a movie producer?
2: This is the first film that I will have produced, but I've got to say I'm no newcomer. Uh, to the world of film. I was on the board of CBS when it first got into film. For many years, I was on the board of Columbia Pictures. Uh, Obviously, and that business was there, um, you know, for all the years that Columbia Pictures owned, uh, Arista, I was on the board. I was intimately involved, may I say, as my documentary graphically points out, as David Foster's documentary currently graphically point out, in making The Bodyguard. So although I was not a producer there, uh, I really, it being Whitney's first film, it was important. um, And so that when the first cut of that film came in. it had very little music. It was just a pure mystery thriller. You had no idea why Whitney needed a bodyguard. And um, I really wrote a long letter, okay, and uh, to Kevin Costner and the director, Mick Jackson, and said, look, I know I'm the head of the, of Whitney's record company, and you might expect this time of letter from the head of a record company. But I'm saying for your film, you have got to show why she needed a bodyguard. The drama of the two of them connecting the way they did will be far more uh, compelling. And Kevin Costner bought into it. And to his credit, he, David Foster, Myself, we just pitched in and came up with all the other songs that have made Bodyguard the biggest selling soundtrack album in history to this day. And um, I was very much involved with Waiting to Exhale, which yes. is second film with the temp score. When I first saw that film, the temp score was Johnny Mathis, James Taylor, Stephen Bishop, and it didn't remotely speak for the subject matter.
1: What's wrong with that picture?
2: What's wrong with that picture? And so I suggested, and I think it was Sherry, um, who's such a wonderful, pioneering, brilliant woman, movie head, we brought in Babyface, Face, and um, he wrote classic songs for each character. And we had, you know, Sitting in My Room by Brandy, and uh, Not Gonna Hurt to marry J. Blige, number one, Whitney had Choo Choo. I mean, it was a classic film using music, as The Bodyguard, mm-hmm. to become a huge world uh, seller, so that uh, I've been involved, you know, really with every Whitney and uh, film, as well uh, as a number of others. So it's not a strange uh, area for me. Do I like it? Yes. I have a mission here. I have a mission to make sure that for all time, that the full picture of Whitney Houston is captured. in in a no-hold-bought film but musically rich that shows her genius uh, and shows more of her character than the public has ever learned today.
1: You must have had, your phone must be overflowing with people calling, wanting to, to pitch you actors to play Whitney. It's such a plum, such a great role.
2: Well, the one thing that we know of because we have not said a word and nor has there been any effort to cast her yet. Uh, But the one thing we know, as distinguished from the Aretha I as distinguished from the eight-part TV genius series where Jennifer Hudson sings as Aretha or Cynthia Erivo sings, as Aretha, in the Whitney biopic, it will all be Whitney. Um, So we don't have to go, if there is any, if there is any uh, uh, vocalist out there that could capture uh, Whitney, um, I'm not sure there is. Um, It won't be necessary for the uh, artist that portrays her to sing, because right. it's going to all be uh, Whitney, including performances that have not been on record. Uh, uh, so that it will not just be all of her greatest, but it will be musically rich uh, in so many ways.
1: Tell me, um, how how did you go about, you must have had to approach Sony for the, for the rights, to her catalog, was that, are,
2: are they involved in the film? How did that go down? No, what happened was that Anthony and I spent a year together, me making sure that this great writer, this Academy Award connected writer, that uh, so many of the actors in his films have won Academy Awards, uh, as well as um, uh, the films that. He has written uh, that he be educated. And um, and so that uh, we decided, both he and I, that we would not just have an outline or talk through, but have the actual script. And so we do have the actual script. We went to all the studios. Um, we have, obviously, so many people have the soundtrack album because of the masters and all the masters that it it does own. But we did go competitively. Um, there are four producers here. I should certainly uh, mention the estate, uh, who was thrilled. I introduced Pat Houston and Larry Mistel. Uh, who bought 50% uh, of the Whitney Houston estate to Anthony. Uh, They spent time together, Um, and um, we went, and there was a fierce competition. And I'm happy to say the reaction to the script, to use the word, of almost every studio had that cold, me, they're passionate. They know that Whitney has been captured and that the opportunity here is so special and, and unique.
1: When you started with Anthony working on the script, did you write the check to get him going? Did you finance the early development of this project yourself? I did
2: not. He viewed getting me as importantly as I viewed getting him. He knew that it wasn't that I just signed with me. He knew that it wasn't that I uh, was there from her entire life and how close we were. I collaborated with her on every song that was chosen. I would narrow down a hundred. I would to the 10. She and I met no matter what, who she was involved with, her marriage, Bobby, her parents, whomever. She never would let anyone else there. So that the entire selection of music, all the hits, all the background, of personal stories, um, that um, I didn't pay a penny to him. He didn't pay a penny to me. We just hit it off. We spent a lot of time at dinners. He came to my home right where I'm quarantined. Right now in Pound uh, uh, I live in Manhattan. Uh, we really spent a lot of time together going through different, um, you know, uh, drafts of this of the script as he got more and more educated uh, here. So that no, I didn't finance anything, and I didn't receive any money. We hit it off, and the two of us said, "Let's do it." together. We said that on two projects. The second one we haven't even talked about, but when we did legally commit to each other, um, we agreed that there still could be a great film on Janis Joplin. So we said if either of us would ever get involved with Janice Joplin, we would do that uh, together as well. But we have done no nothing on uh, on that one, but I was happy to introduce him uh, to Pat Houston, to Larry Mustel, and uh, they spent uh, time with him. By that time, we had the draft of the uh, close to final draft of the uh, script, and they were thrilled. And uh, that's how it happened.
1: Clive, what do you think it was that allowed you to make such an important personal and business connection with Whitney? Why were were you so important in her life?
2: You know, it began from the very beginning. I was not the first one to see Whitney Houston. I was told about Whitney and heard about Whitney from... uh, an a and man that worked for me, Jerry Griffith. I'd heard about her from Luther Vandross because she had done some studio background singing. But <clears throat> other labels, I know that I think Electra Epic had seen her before me. But I do vividly remember, no matter what the passing of years, when I saw her, at a club, Sweet Borders, where she was doing backgrounds from for her mother's sissing, and she stepped out to do two solos. One was "Home from the Whiz," that was clearly I had never met her. She chose "Home from the Whiz." The other was the greatest love of all. Now that was a song I had commissioned eight years before, for the life of Muhammad Ali. And I got Michael Massa, he wrote that. And we had the soundtrack, to the Greatest was the film called, on Muhammad Ali. George Benson had a top 10 record with it. Never dawned on me. Additionally, this young 18 to 19-year-old teenager, And it was though I had never heard the song before. She found meaning in it, her read of it. It honestly is the genius of Whitney uh, before I met her. And um, clearly there was competition and it was she and her parents and her lawyers who made a request of me that I've never given in my career to any artist before Whitney or any artist after Whitney because it's so uncomfortable. And that request was, I will sign with you if you give me one clause. I said, what's that? If you ever leave the company, I can leave with you. Because I know what you did for my cousin, Dion Warwick. I know what you did for the long-time relationship my mom, Sissy, had with Aretha. Franklin, I need that personal commitment from you, that whatever you've done for Dion, whatever you've done for Arifa. You will do for me, and if for any reason you leave the company, now that's a tough. I could not give up that. I had to go to the parent company, and in that year, 1983, and involved RCA and General Electric, and I had to say, I know the uh, conflict here. I can't make this decision. Gives me a lot of quote power if she becomes big. And they asked me one question. Are you passionate about her? I said, I am deeply passionate about her. We got the approval. She got the key man calls. So that that connection. I did whatever I did do for Dion, but I'll never love this way again. Deja Vu and Heartbreaker that put Friends of Form with the Reefer right at the beginning. And so it took two years that I knew how unique and special I had, I didn't take anything for granted. I had auditions for the biggest songwriters in the world in New York, in Los Angeles. I said, She does not write, she wants the best material, I want the best material for her. And that's how we assembled the material for that first album with my good friend, Michael Massa, who tragically passed away a few years ago, but I'm godfather to his daughter, Um, from conceived an artist artist, Jermaine Jackson, got involved. And that is the background uh, of the assembling of the material two years
1: mm-hmm.
2: before the debut album came out.
1: Clive, is the with the physical product, the physical music product with sales of those dwindling, we, we know from artists that the digital revenue just isn't making up the same amount of income that they once got from recorded music. Do you think that the the shift in artists, the, the, the real money-making potential for artists is so often in touring, is that changing the whole nature of the business? Do you think, do you think that, that artists are, um, that recorded music is less of a potential, you know, profit center for artists than it, than it once was?
2: I think that we're still in an early transitional period. Um, streaming has had an electrifying effect on the music business. All of us in it are grateful, so grateful that you you know music is more omnipresent all over the world than ever, and as It develops, um, and it's really still in the process uh, of developing. Uh, I'm hopeful that its electrifying growth will end up where artists can indeed, artists, writers, uh, can make more money uh, from digital, uh, certainly than has been in the past, uh, and get back to that. But touring is very much a part of, uh, that's what's during this quarantine period. And, you know, we're all human, we're all know. Um, you know, we got a presidential race in November on this issue as to, we have to respect, we gotta get better first, okay? I'm on the side of those that say, before we return to normal, let's get healthy and make sure we stay healthy rather than push it and have sacrifice uh, by human beings in the process. So, but, Cynthia, in seeing before the quarantine, stadium tours like we've never seen before, uh, it's been astonishing. how, as I said, an Ed Sheeran can be playing stadiums and uh, just not just the big artists, or not just the best-selling artists, but the older, established, iconic artists—it's uh, been amazing. So touring uh, is bigger than ever, when normal, and let's hope it returns to normal.
1: I know in this in this period where it's not normal and people can't tour. I know you've been involved with this with the really wonderful industry-based fundraising effort called Quarantine that has done a lot of good for great organizations focused on uh, COVID relief. Um, what has that? What have those Zoom concerts? What have those taught you, or what do you think those reflect about what music can do for people, particularly in, in troubled times?
2: It's been truly an unexpected, amazing experience for me. When Richard White, who heads TV for William Morris, told me about what he and his daughter Demi were planning on Zoom, For charity, Um, I went on board. I said I would help out right from the beginning, not at all um, anticipating the magnitude of what it would grow to. And so that we've now raised over $10 million for charity. And for me, I've reached back and over this few month period, uh, whether it was Rod Stewart, whether it was Barry Manilow, I've gone back to speak to artists that I haven't spoken to Cynthia in decades. But I can think of Air Supply, Artie Garfunkel, whom I did speak to. They've all done it, if I call them, Carly Simon, friends of mine, Elvis Costello, Bryant, Adams, um, Jennifer Hudson. Um, they've all done it. They love doing it. Um, a few have done it more than once.
1: Clive, let me ask you, if you were giving advice to your younger self, if you, if you were coming out of Harvard Law School today in the, in the music and entertainment industry today what direction do you think young clive davis would go would you think would you still go into music as an executive would you go into talent management what what would be your interest you think if you were starting today
2: well first let me correct an impression when i get out of all of those the first thing from my mind was that i would ever go into the Music business. I like music. Uh, I was I was listening to the biggest station at that time, WNEW. Martin Block uh, as a fan, but I wasn't consumed by it. I had no thought of a career direction. Uh, in that I got into it by accident. I was just trying to survive. I had no money. My parents died after my freshman year, coincidentally, tragically, traumatically. Um, so I had $4,000 to my name, and the only way that I would rise above my station, my father was an electrician, tie salesman, was the law. So by luck, my law firm that I was accepted by, represented Columbia Records. By luck, two years later, they needed a chief counsel. I never thought I could discover artists, never thought I could find songs, AR, and artist, repertoire. Uh, so I didn't say that to myself. Today, Today, I had to face this Cynthia a few years ago because, because of the fact that I got through college and law school through the beneficence of others via scholarship. When I could give back, I've given back through music education. I've endowed at Tisch, the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music, they get their degree. We're attracting so many young artists, writers, producers, uh, who really want a career in music. So to get to your question, before streaming, we were in tough shape. Music had dropped dramatically when people thought they were entitled to it free off the internet And now, with assurance, I am encouraging all of them to pursue music as their career. And it became unexpected to me by luck, but I poured myself into it and found a career that keeps me passionate, if you will, to this day. And um, it's a wonderful life in music. Uh, it's so important to everybody, uh, it's so important in times like these, and good times, bad times, if you will. Um, so, my advice would be if music rings through you, go for it. Go for it. Apply, whether it's in my school or Marty Bendia's at Syracuse or others now uh, around the country, study it. Keep that work ethic, high. For me, they don't play your records because you discover Joplin or Springsteen. You gotta, you gotta be there, right with it. Keep your ears fresh. I still listen to every chart record when it comes out to see how music is changing. If you still love it and you still feel it, you never want to go over the hill, and so um those are my tenets and that's my advice
1: my goodness clive when i just think about all the incredible artists that you're that you have intersected with over the years patty smith who was pretty much you know to this day remains my idol when i was a teenager i played that i played that horses i played the grooves out of out of horses and uh, just think of all the artists over the years and that you are still putting together movie projects and moving it forward. Uh, I'm so grateful that you spent time talking to me today. It's really been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, thank you for all the good work that you do.
2: My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Be sure to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from listeners. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business.